This is episode number 200. What will I become when the new normal emerges? With Scott Mason. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to our upcoming call this Saturday called Courageous Conversations. This is a call that we started approximately eight to nine months ago with the intention of bringing our community even closer as well as creating a space for each and every single one of us to better understand our own journeys. If you're inter- interested in joining any of these upcoming calls, please leave us a message through our website at overcomingodds.today. The last announcement that I would like to make is in regard to our show. If you have liked any of the previous episodes, or if this is your first time tuning in, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. There he is, Scott Mason. Welcome back to the show. I am glad to be here. How are you? I'm good. I was going to do a full-blown introduction, you know, like Josh Corpel did for both of us <laughs> on his show, but then I was just like, no, I've, I, I've known you for a quite, <laughs> quite some time that I feel like an introduction is not really needed. Uh, well, you know, if you know, if someone knows you and they, they know me, if they know me, they know you, right? Like, what are we wasting our breath <laughs> for? <laughs> That's awesome. How was, uh, how was your Christmas and it was New, Year, New Year's, but that hasn't happened just yet. Yeah, I know. Thank you. It was wonderful. Um, look, I, you know, there was some house redecoration that happened. There was lots of sleeping, and um, there was lots of thinking about the wonderful yet challenging year we have had so far. And, and I say that a little awkwardly because it has been awful in a lot of ways. But what I was focusing on were some of the wonderful things that I got to experience this year, despite it all, including our connection. What do you think you've learned? I mean, that's probably a loaded question, but if you were to really break it down <coughs> and during the time that you reflected upon it, what would you say the biggest biggest things that stood out to you? Mm. I'll throw out three. Mm-hmm. First of all, life circumstances can change dramatically in an instant and in a level and to an extent that is beyond what any of us could have ever you could ever imagine. And it's going to be unexpected. Of all of the catastrophes that I would have imagined might have occurred in um, 2020, back, way back in February, a pandemic that would have kept us in you know, a national lockdown for what will probably be very nearly a year, if not beyond that, uh, would have been the very last thing on my mind. So that's number one. Circumstances, life can dramatically and inalterably change. Uh-huh. Number two, Surprising connections, innovations, and rebirths can occur because of that. That would never have happened. And that, you know, 
as we wade through the tragedy and the horror of changed circumstances, the ability to not let those block out everything else, but in to, to instead focus on the opportunities that they present is a big, big survival technique. Number okay. three, and this is very personal, Oleg, but I think you've seen it and I've certainly seen it in you as well as so many other people. I have been through a lot of hardship and challenge in my life, uh-huh. a lot. But I realized when this first went down that all of that has made me into a resilient super soldier, a machine. <laughs> and that's the beauty of having not had a life full of safety, comfort, entitlement, or pampering. You're ready. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that has been a huge realization. I've never felt this way before in my life. And that is wonderful. Again, despite all of the sad stuff that's happened. How do you approach that? Like, do you have a specific uh, method or set of questions that you ask yourself that put puts you in that position to learn from your circumstances? You know, for me, I try (coughs) within the past year, maybe longer, I've looked at some of these challenges through the lens of what am I here to learn? Or what is this here to teach me? And just that simple reframe alone has helped me develop a completely different perspective when it comes to life in general. Like you mentioned those three, how did you come to those? I mean, is there something that you do on a daily basis that serves as a reminder? Are there questions that you ask yourself when you experience such adversities or circumstances in your own life? You know, I was at a meeting last night and we were talking about resilience generally. And I will start off with what I told them last that is humorous. Uh And I think you know me well enough to predict what this answer is going to be. But I will say it actually plays a significant role. And that is for me, I put on disco. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Or sing disco. Why? Because the mind needs a reset in periods of darkness and say what you will about disco or EDM or whatever, (laughs) whatever variant you like, it's upbeat and it's fun. Uh And that gets your mind going, right? If I'm bouncing along to some, you know, rubbery bass or some highly charged twirling rave music, how, and what sort of bad state can I be? And so that's one technique that I have. I mentally try and switch into that space of joy or of exultation or at a very minimum of uplift because you, without some sort of mental state around uplift, you can't, you, you, you're going to be mired in whatever darkness you have. The other thing too is to, and I was the king of this for so long. I'm embarrassed to admit it, Oleg. Um, (laughs) You know, I was the king of why me? Oh, here's another, you know, tragedy that I've got to go through. Here's another burden I've got to endure. You know, learning that that is just a, a recording or a narrative that we tell ourselves and not just learning it, but practicing it, understanding that getting acknowledging that and then switching it is a self-discipline uh-huh. and the self-discipline is what's going to get us through hardship is everything underlying all of this by the way is you know like i just said self-discipline as a concept resilience is a self-discipline mindset shift is a self-discipline playing Disco music in your head is a self-discipline, although it may not seem that way. And so that's the other thing to remind myself, at least, Scott, you have the self-discipline. Be self-disciplined. 
Mm. And then it's easier to move into that space. How do you find the difference then in that particular case? So when you're working on your own self-discipline when it comes to any of these subjects, but you might be surrounded by an environment of people <laughs> that don't necessarily align in the same frequency. What's the, what's the discipline that you find yourself having to work on and create to mm. kind of remind yourself that, hey, my way of thinking, it's not necessarily any better or worse. It's just different. Yeah. But because of that, I mean, do you try and break away, break yourself away from such groups or, you know, is there constant tension that you're working yeah. on and like reframing? What a fantastic question. And as usual, it's complex and requires a, uh, a sort of multi-level approach to an answer. First of all, you know, there are some circumstances for some folks in this pandemic where their choices really are limited or their options are limited. And I'm imagining right here, for instance, immediately, for instance, let's say you are a uh, abused wife who okay. was caught in an apartment during the darkest days of the lockdown with an abuser. Um, and, and you feel like, you know, part of abuse domestic violence is psychological abuse that the person feels they don't have choice. They can't see the full range of options there. Their ability to think things through is battered down and limited. And let's say for whatever reason, you know, when their partner isn't there or because their partner doesn't see, you know, them going on to uh, a live stream show with us as something that's potentially threatening, they happen to be the one here hearing this. I would say that the first thing to understand is that really there always are options. There can be a place for you to get out. Uh -huh. You may not want to take that risk or you may not feel that you can take that risk, but you can be, you can do it. It might literally be that you just have to walk out, you know, go pretend you're going grocery shopping or sneak out at night and call 911 and saying, I'm in a desperate situation, I need help. Uh -huh. And someone can be there for you, but that's that's one potential option that is, a, you know, so understanding that you have that option. And, and and that's even in the most dire circumstances. And and I say that with some authority, because as you know, but as audience members may not know, I used to actually work for a domestic violence um, shelter service agency, and people can escape. There's risk and all of that associated with it, but it's not as risky as staying in an environment that will destroy your mind. And, and in difficult times like ours, Every last tool that we have in our arsenal to keep our minds from being destroyed by others or by ourselves is essential. So that's number one. Number two, all along, day-to-day -day practice that needs to be escalated, I believe, or at least I've chosen to escalate in a situation like this, is a constant, what I call, environmental assessment of who and what you're around. You know, in business, uh -huh. if you want to succeed, you're going to have to be aware of the environment that you're operating in at all times. Uh -huh. A lot of businesses fail even in good circumstances because they're not thinking about the competition. They're purely in this insular transactional state between them and their and their customers. And then all of a sudden that upstart from outside that's watching them figures out their weaknesses, goes for that, and all of a sudden their business is crumbling. Our relationships are just like that. Uh -huh. environmentally scanning who is in my environment and why are they here my own relationships have changed and some of them have gone on 
to the wayside because I feel like they're not supporting who and what I've become, or they maybe knew me in a time in which I was more fearful or I was less resilient or I was less super soldiered up and they're not comfortable with the person I have to, to, uh, I've become. Well, be prepared for that. That's painful. That involves loss, but your future matters more than that. Uh I would argue at least. And then number two, the final thing that I would say to folks about this is that people half the time don't know what they're talking about, even if they pretend they do. Actually, Josh Corpel said that to me recently, and I will repeat his words and I will give them the credit that it's due. It's true. Half the time, and you may have even said it to me yourself, half the time people are just saying things out of their mouth. They don't know you. They don't know your life. You, know, uh-huh. you and I have talked in another circumstance, um, you know, about people sweepingly saying, we need to this, we need to that, you <laughs> should, we should this. They don't know, we're not all the same. We're not, we're not monolithic ants. Part of why you and I work so well together, I believe, uh-huh. is that we're so different uh-huh. in key ways. So what's good for Oleg and what Oleg needs to be doing may not be what I need to be doing it all. Once you understand that people don't necessarily know what's best for you, they might have opinions they don't know, and that their opinions don't matter, and having self-discipline around the concept of saying, that doesn't matter. Uh Boom. Uh The chains come off, they shatter to the floor, you're free. That gives you resilience. I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine, and he said something that's it really piqued my interest. He's, we're talking about people and just how well we think we know each other. And he and he said that um, he said something along the lines of like, you don't truly know anyone. It's you think you know someone, and that kind of brought up the interesting point as you were mentioning that third point, and that is, how well do you think you know someone? What does it actually mean to know someone? Seriously, how well? Well, first of all, let's start by stepping back a bit. How well do all of us know ourselves? I mean, sometimes my husband pops out some, some stuff about me that I'm like, oh my God, that's totally true. I didn't even realize. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know myself. So who am I to say I know anybody else? But then you think about these bizarre, weird stories where there is a, um, it's usually a wife who has lived with a man for and been married to him and living in the same room for 20, 30 years. And suddenly the police are under her house digging and they're finding corpses because her husband that she'd been with for 30 years and gone to church with and all this was a serial killer. She didn't know him. She thought she did, but she really didn't. Mm-hmm. That's ex- dramatic and extreme. But then again, you know, taking out, you know how I am. I like to look at the most extreme situation and then narrow it down. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a zillion different things um, because we all do have to. Well, who am I saying? We? <laughs> Many of us. <laughs> a bit of hypocrisy caught there. A bit of awareness. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us, I would, I guess most of us, tell convenient little lies sometimes just to make life easier and because it doesn't matter. Um, you know, yes. Um, you know, I, I, you know, that looks pretty on you. Okay. Now I can get back to work. Right. That might not be true, 
Um, and you, but you don't want to enter into the argument or you want that person to feel good about themselves. And so do you really know them in that? You don't even know them in that moment because what they might have told you about that dress you were putting on in that shirt, those suspenders you were wearing was a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we can, what we can do is provide a, uh, as a rough estimation within our mind. Um, we are creating our own mental picture. And is that something that we're comfortable with? And how are we feeling in that situation? That's something we have control over and that we can understand. And that I believe um, is at least one alternative, accepting that and then embracing that as the reality. Look, you and I talked, we, for those of you all who might not have, you know, be new to the show or, or, or might not have heard of this earlier this year, Oleg and I did an Instagram live show. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in that where we started talking about whether anything was real. Yeah. I was looking at some vines across the alley from my backyard. Are those vines real or are my eyes just perceiving that? So what do we really know? Mm-hmm. And how real is real? I know that Thomas, one of our mutual friends, also is uh, someone that I <laughs> I pick my brain with uh, around that whole concept. Like how real is real? <laughs> how real is a conversation? How real is a conflict? How real is a problem? And is it, is it only real to you? Because even that whole concept of being a problem, you know, I'm like a huge believer at this point that like the problem is me. Yeah. Because it's only a problem to me. It may not be a problem to you, but it's perceived that it is. But if I were to ask you and, and say, hey, Scott, was this a problem to you? And you say no, then it was only a problem to me. So well, maybe the real, real component is only real to me. Boom. You know, that TV series, The Handmaid's Tale, a very interesting sequence of events happened during that that I think illustrates what you're saying. Uh You know, for those who are not familiar with it, The Handmaid's Tale, there's a post-apocalyptic America where a fundamentalist um, government has taken over and they've basically enslaved women and made them into regular women that can have children. You know, they made them into these basically human vessels for procreation. And... There is a, a, one of the handmaids, generally, of course, the women that have become oppressed and enslaved by this are resentful, and it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. It's the worst thing imaginable. And you as an audience member are expected to perceive it that way. But one of the handmaids says to the heroine of the TV series, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I was a drug addict. I had no self-control. I didn't even have a home. Now I'm living in a nice house. I don't have access to drugs. I'm clean. Yeah, you know, this horrible stuff happens to me. I don't care. My life is, I have food. I have, my life is so much better. I don't want things to change. That goes to your point. What's universal anyway? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And it also, I think, reminds me of something that you mentioned a couple of times throughout this, is that everything is changing. <laughs> everything is evolving. I even think this whole concept that you and I initially chose to talk about, the whole concept of normal, you know, and I remember, I think the question that you posed was like, what will I become when the new normal emerges? And it's a good question, because like, what does normal even mean to begin with? Yeah. And is that something that's changing every single step of the way? And is there such thing as like stable, secure, normal, or is it constantly changing? Is it constantly evolving? How do you understand that concept actually? What does normal mean to you? Right up there with Mount Olympus, a myth. Mm. You know, after World War II, due to the fact in no small part that Europe was in tatters 
Asia was in tatters. Um, you know, the former colonial um, governments and um, or the f- former colonies in places like South Asia and Africa and South America were facing a whole host of other issues. Um, America was uniquely positioned to grow as an industrial economic power and military power for that matter. And it did. And so from the mid to late 40s into the 50s and then into the 60s, and maybe even a little bit into the early 70s, mostly in the 60s, right? there was this unprecedented era of American growth, cultural dominance, prosperity, ever-expanding, ever-increasing standards of living and and healthcare advances and all these other wonderful things. And then it began to slow down in the 70s, and it's varied up and down dramatically since then. And one of the things that certain political leaders and religious leaders and other cultural leaders have have rallied people around is the idea that we that there was a time in which there was a normal America and okay. where things were normal and that we should move back to that era. A it wasn't normal if you were African-American. I'll, I'll just sort of throw that out there. <laughs> it wasn't because you were going through segregation and all sorts of other crap. But number two, historically, even leaving that aside, this era of economic prosperity that was sustained that long was a massive anomaly. What for entire generations, and then therefore the generations that succeeded them perceived to be normal, actually was a huge historical blip. And that goes as to the underlying illusory nature of what normal is. Who is a normal person? As you know, I grew up half black, half white in a white community in the Midwest raised by African-Americans that adopted me. I was not normal, Uh at least according to the standards that I absorbed. But let's face it. The globe. I were to go to, let's say, Egypt and walk down the street looking exactly like I do, I would look probably pretty normal. When I was in Greece, people thought I was Greek. And so that that is totally subjective. No one knows any of this. Do you think you do you think we're always in change then? Do you think that's that's a more realistic picture? Because I that's what I kind of believe in. I think it's always the environment is always changing. I mean, even the people that we were yesterday compared to the people that we are today, compared to the, the people that will we'll be in the next minute. <laughs> I agree I completely. I think the question and response I have to you mm-hmm. is whether you agree that we all embrace it. Right? There are people whose ideologies never change, whose yeah. fundamental characteristics never change. Uh, and they may pride themselves on that, and they or they don't like change, and they resist it. And they may attempt to fight it through everything from plastic surgery to holding on to um, ideological or philosophical or ethical paradigms that are appear apparently to nobody very um, very stagnant. And or, or and so you know, right? Like one, th- there was a woman that I knew when I was in college who was a, a very sort of firebrandish civil rights person, and she said, and her area of focus were issues of racial inequity. And one of the things she said that she found to be a challenge was keeping up with the times and the fact that people do change and attitudes shift and change. She was concerned about her rhetoric 
around racial equality becoming irrelevant as society changed and grew. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had to kind of respect that because you don't want to be someone that's still talking the same game 40 years ago when everyone else has moved on. Yeah, and it may not be understood. Kim Schultz had, had joined us here on the show, and she says, every day is a new normal. <laughs> And every day is a new day for Kim Schultz. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. But, you know, she does have a point in that. And I think every day is a new normal as far as it presents different opportunities to learn things that you may not have known yesterday, the past hour. <laughs> and the example that you brought up about that person knowing what she knew, it, I mean, the world does change very fast. So yeah. one day you might be speaking someone else's language. Next day you're not. Yeah. You know, like one of the things that people might have had in their stump speech for years might have been America, you know, has never had an African-American president. Well, overnight, <laughs> one day that changed. And and so, and the attitudes and the impact that that will have on our culture and what that will mean for people, just as one example, technology, mm-hmm. watches, right? television sets all of entertainment yeah has changed drastically yeah it it has taken its own life but i i think the question that you pointed out as far as embracing it for what it is for me my experience has taught me that that has been one of the challenges you know it's embracing the fact i mean before now um however many years ago but it's embracing the fact that everything is changing Mm -hmm. everything is evolving so even that that sense of um, security and comfort, mm-hmm. I would even argue that I believe that's probably an illusion in many of the situations. I mean, think about it. You know, you may feel like you have the comfort now, but as soon as you take the next step forward, that's going to require you to take a new action or step into a new space or new environment. What comfort do you have? What security do you have at that point? Another mutual friend of ours, Josh Skyer, uh-huh. I recently had on my own podcast. And in that episode, he told a story. He um, works with a company uh, or he works with a, a nonprofit that provides um, people that are quadriplegic or paraplegic with the opportunity to go out for a day to the beach and then surf under, of course, very carefully monitored supervision and with safety protocols in place and everything. And he told me the story of a woman. He's a professional martial artist. Now, can you imagine as a professional art, uh, martial artist, asking you're having a conversation with one of the surfers who's, you know, paralyzed, um, you know, and during that conversation, she mentioned, she says, oh, guess how I got paralyzed. And he says, how? And she says, through a martial arts accident. Wow. Yeah. And then I would make me re- probably reconsider. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will be honest with you. My you know, response when I heard that story was like, oh, I haven't I haven't done my jujitsu in a long time. Maybe, <laughs> I, I, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> Seriously. But in any event, uh, you know, she said he and whatever way the conversation went to, well, why are you here surfing? And she said, because everything in my life is safe. Everyone is always trying to protect me from the moment I get out of bed. You know, any movement I make, lifting me out of the bed, putting me in my chair, going to get a shower, going to get everything is around me being safe and protected. And, and, you know, she didn't use this word, but coddled. And she said, on that surfboard, 
for that minute, I'm not safe. Mm. And that's when I'm alive. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I also get curious as far as the whole safety component. Do you think reflection only comes from the space of safe? Or do you think reflection can also happen in the midst of change? It may not happen in the midst, depending on what your mindset is, depending on how rapid the change is, depending on the circumstances that you're in, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think my experience that we've discussed before about the World Trade Center is that, right? Like the World Trade Center was in a period of transition when I looked up and it suddenly was falling down. And in that moment, no, I was not able to really process or do anything except just run to escape. But the aftermath was a slower change, just as the situation that we as a world are in now was sort of the slow rolling, weird, (laughs) ever building and getting stranger by the day change. And in that situation, I think processing, if we choose to do it, can be easier. It doesn't need to come from a place of safety. In my experience, I have been able to process from a safety, from a place of safety after the change or when the change at least has Uh. flowed to a point where I can have the mental space to to do that however Uh I think about my years working for city government particularly when I was working for one of the jobs that I had for about eight years and you know there was a period where towards the end of my departure you know or towards the time that I was thinking about leaving where you know, people were getting fired left and right. Every time you turn around, someone else was quitting or there was da, 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 da. But during the majority of that time, people would sit in these same jobs for 40 years doing the exact same thing. And no, they were not processing anything. I was not during the period of time where I felt totally safe and comfortable not processing anything except the next meal that was being processed through my digestive system. (laughs) I didn't have to. The safety gave me the luxury of not processing, of not growing. It gave me the illusion, by the way, of being safe. The Mm -hmm. place of safety was a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nothing makes us safe. Where do you find yourself now? Do you you find yourself constantly striving for change, striving? Yes. Like when you recognize the fact that you might be comfortable, A, what does that even look like for you? How do you sense, how do you understand and how do you sense the fact that you are getting too comfortable? I'll answer that one when I really know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have Open not known that, that for years. Yeah. So good. I'll get to be back another time. I can't wait. <laughs> but it'll be a very long time. So we're going to have to hold the date until maybe the day before I die. Yeah, but, 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 you know, I actively seek not being comfortable. There are moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I could have it easy and rest on my laurels. That's never, that has not been my fate for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I've come to be grateful for that. And not only that, I've come to, yes, I can say that, embrace the adventure. I have had lows because of that. So Mm -hmm. I've had highs also beyond what people can experience. Mm -hmm. What you see right now, 10 years ago, when I talked 12 years ago, I talked like this. 
a, bu- a bureaucrat, uh, okay. you know, or some or a very stereotypical dull lawyer that used all of these fancy Latin terms and blah, 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 blah and had, now you see the presentation I have? Uh-huh. That comes from not being safe. That comes from embracing the change because I'm excited about tomorrow, uh-huh. the day after. I don't know what it's going to be. It might bring bad stuff. So what? I'll survive that too. Do you think part of that comes from your childhood? The fact yes. that you did have I didn't have safety, so I'm used to it. Because uh-huh. I was noticing the same exact thing about my own journey. <clears throat> In fact, this morning, I was reflecting on um, one of the concepts that Nancy, John, and I had a conversation about. And it's this whole concept of overcoming. <clears throat> and for me, what I realized was that how I choose to look at that term, it's not necessarily through the lens of overcoming means eliminate or defeat. Mm. But it's more so develop a different relationship. You know, when it comes to like overcoming depression, anxiety, and stress, I don't believe you can, I don't believe there's an endpoint to any of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've always been there and they will always be there. They will continue to be there every step of the way. So for me, the experience more so revolves around what's the relationship that I want to have with each one. Now, mm-hmm. as I was reflecting upon that, I think much of that came from my childhood experiences you know, and understanding life the way it was and, and the change and just understanding that, hey, whatever the change I'm going through right now, this is not the last mm-hmm. portion of it. There will mm-hmm. be more to come. Mm-hmm. So I think like those years are really interesting to analyze and, and like learn from because mm-hmm. there's some serious, at least for me, there have been some serious lessons that I've been able to walk away with. Mm-hmm. And in your case, the changes in, that you experienced in your childhood were so radical. I mean, mm-hmm. not just different countries. Yeah. Different families. <laughs> different, yeah. different languages. Right? Entire different cultural frameworks that you had to adapt and change to. Or, to me, that's amazing to hear. And of course, it's no surprising that once your mind and someone like Nancy Johns comes together and some to me, mind blowing insight like that would come out um, because that there is real truth there. Um, you know, to think that it go, that really is going as to the 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 argument as to whether stasis exists at all, mm-hmm. and then also to the extent to which um, even if we choose to deny something or fight against it there is a relationship there because there is a relationship. You can't fight against something you don't have a relationship with. True. Otherwise you're fighting against something that doesn't even exist. And so understanding that and then thinking about your relationship with it and understanding that it's a relationship that you have some say in as well mm. is empowering. And to me, what is the ultimate key yeah. to power and what I do feel many of us, I, although I've learned many people don't like this, but many of us need to have is a some sort of sense of agency in the things that we have relationships with. Otherwise, many of us feel oppressed by those situations and those relationships. What do you mean by that? Is it is it a sense of power, sense of influence? Perhaps both. I am less comfortable, uh-huh. and I would bet many other people are, in situations in which you feel like you have no Yes, ability to influence your circumstances and no ability to shift. To me, lack of agency uh-huh. is a lack of freedom because to me, freedom is the existence of and exercise 
of agency. Slavery, you had no agency or extraordinarily limited agency. You, right, you could not go where you wanted to go. You couldn't get married. You you couldn't work where you wanted to work. You, You couldn't even do sometimes what you wanted to do, how you wanted to do it. And that was lack of agency. And that's, that was the cruelty of it. And that's why throughout history, it's been viewed as the ultimate breaker of human spirits. People would be noble men or women who had castles and were masters of entire countries, be conquered by another country and end up, you know, in salt mines somewhere for the rest of their lives without any agency. Mm-hmm. From literally controlling the fate of tens of, if not hundreds of thousands of people to being ordered by some random overseer to go into that dark cave without protection with, with a picket and bringing back a barrel of salt. Well, I remember one time you and I were having a conversation. I think it was with Paul, Paul Newell yeah, on um, just a squirrel looking for a nut. Yeah. And we're talking about this concept of freedom. And I think one of the things that we ended up coming away with as a conclusion was that to a degree, freedom is illusion. You know, because there was—I don't believe there is such thing as ultimate freedom. <laughs> There's always a construct. Even think about the way that the society is set up. I mean, yes, you could argue that you have freedom of thought, but do you really? You may have freedom to think, but do you have the ultimate freedom to act upon that? Pulling in from science, philosophy, and religion—really mm-hmm. interesting. And now. You may have me walking back on everything that I ever said, but I will. Why not? Think about this. There are, and I, I, I'm not a scientist, uh-huh. just a, a well-read layperson, or at least trying to be well-read layperson, um, that indicate that the actions that people take, which they perceive as instinctive, actually begin to occur before the thought enters into their mind. That is something fascinating to contemplate. There's also this idea that you and I talk about, uh-huh. and I wondered if you just sort of snaked me down this road. <laughs> do I know you? No, I don't. I think I do. <laughs> you think you do. <laughs> right? And that is the idea that many people share, and I do too, of providence. Now, it may be, Providence is expressed through a god or or deity or deities. Mm-hmm. It may be through some scientific force that we don't understand, or it may be something that's so far beyond our comprehension we can't begin to question. And that's why I call it providence. That's vague enough to to uh, to embrace all of those possibilities as well as other things I, I might not be able to imagine. And one view of providence is that our agency really is super limited that we have perhaps a best case scenario ability to adopt, adapt and exert and manifest choices, but only within, within a limited framework Mm. Um, framework is itself governed or set in place by someone or something else. And by the way, even the most ardent atheist would probably argue that that's true. And the reason for that is there are certain constraints on all of our ability to be truly free. For instance, our need for oxygen. 
Yeah. We can't be free and, 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 and the existence of gravity and our bone structure. We can't be free to just go for a walk from here and, and the distance. We can't just go from, from this podcast on a walk to Mars. We'll die. <laughs> Even if we had the physical capacity. So there are constraints as to our agency, even assuming there's no providence. And let's say you have a very strict view of how God or, uh, you know, is that God has put us on the planet Uh and that we have free will to act as God will or would not want us to act. And so therefore the outcomes of your decisions in that are, are, um, are the source of potential judgment. Well, let's sit back and think about that for a minute, though. God still gave us the exact same physical framework to operate in. Uh-huh. God set us all in unique circumstances. Right? God did not give, um, you know, Jared Kushner and you know, and some poor child in uh you know born into an orphanage in india the same set of circumstances and so their choices are constrained and so the the amount of free will that we have or might not have is is very limited and so even if one were to argue against what you were saying a minute ago the to me the conclusion looking at it honestly is inescapable at best at best yeah there are significant constraints on our ability to have agency and choice in the world at worst if you think as i do that providence may be a little bit more controlling than we like to admit or that our actions are controlled by forces right as that scientific experiment pointed to that are beyond our beyond our ability to think Mm -hmm. um then we may have little or no agency at all and that is a profound thing for us to come right like that goes to the whole um video game hologram all this sort of stuff it's crazy yeah Yeah. and i know that this is a topic you and i even talked about with the show here who has joined us um from afar (laughs) but it is it is a really good point (laughs) i mean what is it at the end of the day and i guess for me the only thing that matters is however i understand it you know, like if I if I choose to believe that this is a game and I'm just a character in it or whatever the other thing that I choose to believe in, that's the only thing that matters. And I think even going back to this whole concept of normal, it's whatever you make it to be. You know, like what normal, it's, it's such a um, broad topic with so many different perspectives that can be shared around it. Like whatever is normal to you may not be normal to me. And the same is true vice versa. For me, the whole concept of normal, it just means it's like it's never ending change because that's what it is, really. You know, and and that's something I was going to ask you about, you know, like normal to you and normal to everyone else, too. And and, and as to the challenges with an underlying um, across the board definition of normal, it it is sort of a ridiculous word. I mean, if I were to be, you know, really thinking through. and that, that was a whole issue, for instance, around homosexuality. For a long time, that was deemed not normal, and so people were killed for it. And they still are being killed for it mm-hmm. or suffer discrimination or that sort of thing. And it, But it's not normal as people who are LGBTQA plus constantly. It's not normal for them to be heterosexual. Asexual people say the same thing. It's not normal for them to have sexual drives. So who was anyone to accuse them of being yeah. 
you know, maybe the world would be better if more people didn't have sexual Yeah. And who gets to decide that at the end of the day, right? And is normal even uh, something that we should be aspiring to? I mean, to me, like half the time, and this is a a bias on my part, the normal people that I know aren't doing anything with their lives. They're walking through in a zombie-like state watching TV, having a beer, watching the game over and over, and then doing their work and not, you know, not necessarily looking to change within themselves, not looking to change on the outside, just sort of going along. And, and if that's normal, is that something that's aspirational? Yeah. They're not the same. Michelle had mentioned here, she said, normal is definitely (coughs) subjective, same as value, worth, success, et cetera. Yeah. I'm 100% on board with that. I, yeah. I think far too often, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, where I have had certain people, certain structures define some of these things for me. You know, yeah. this is what it means to be successful. But then through my my own experience about chasing after that thing or aspiring to be successful in X, Y, and Z way, I realized that like that feeling is actually not the same compared to the one that I've been able to identify for my own self. Like, what does it mean? Like, I'm a huge believer that every single day, regardless of what my circumstances may be, I can choose to wake up and tell myself that I'm already successful in the way that I am. You know, because it's a a matter of perspective. It is. Successful in having the ability to get up and breathe, to see, to have an open conversation like this, to not judge, or at least be aware of the times when I do judge, you know? I was um, on the C-suite of a nonprofit for a while. And during one of those, um, they had an annual like staff day. And there was some, there was a giveaway of, that was like a raffle. Everyone put their name in a hat. And then the head of IT was pulling out names. And whoever whose name was pulled out got a free iPad or something like that, a free tablet. Uh-huh. And I tell this story because, you know, one thing that I've suffered a challenge with, and at this point in my life, I was suffering a challenge around it, was that I didn't feel ever feel like I was successful enough. And so I was in that position, um, and it was a position stepping back if I had been able to have any sort of self-awareness or ability to step out of myself at that time, I might've been able to view it differently, but it was a, it was a job. Many people, I, it was a competitive job. Many people wanted it. It looked great on my resume. No one that I've told about it has been like, Oh, yawn, what a bore. Um, but I was just like, Oh yeah, this is another, you know, job I have, or I is example of me, uh, you know, underachieving and, under this and under that and not been blah, 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 blah. In any event, during this raffle, my name got pulled out. So I won a tablet and, you know, I wasn't going to accept (laughs) not the purpose of that, but, but I certainly wasn't going to accept it after the people, some of the staff people said, Hey, why are you winning anything? This is, this isn't for the big wigs. This is for us little people. Mm. Right. Like how I was perceiving success, that's really when it hit me, was totally under my control. And, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, I was viewing it being under my control in a way that was utterly and ludicrously warped. Mm-hmm. But I might add, she was also guilty, I believe, of the same thing because she wasn't just a little person. She was doing yeah. amazing work every day for her clients. Yeah. Uh, 
So it could all just be a matter of perspective. Yeah. You know, and how she viewed it. And Lachelle actually brought up a really good point that I wanted us to maybe dive into. And that's when we were talking about this whole concept of definition, she said that <laughs> I think really only thing to consider to have the same definition is birth and death. What do you think about that? As far as having a universal concept of normal, you know, or universal definition. We don't even agree on what death is. What is the point of death? Or yeah. what is the point at which it happened? That's why we've had controversies around people on life support long-term, whether that should be cut off or not. National yeah. controversies, even international controversies about that. And even the same thing with birth. Birth. Know? Well, so an interesting thing about the whole um, abortion debate, and mm-hmm. I'm not going to state my view as to whether I'm pro-life or pro you know, or, or pro-choice. I'm, I'm not, but it is to point out something that's interesting. Um, a lot of the argument against that people make against um, legalizing abortion is that it is according to those individuals, legalizing murder and the usual strain of thought that people have around that is that life begins at conception. Well, and that they, you know, and that this belief in life is based on um, the thinking that the teachings of the Bible. Now the new Testament in particular was written during times of Roman domination. Okay. And the Romans actually did not believe that, and this was a common view at the time, that children did not become alive until sometime after birth. The reason for that is because the we believe is that the infant mortality rate was so high and there were birth defects or other things that would happen that would make children non-viable. And so what they did was if the child, um, you know, they if the child they felt the child didn't have a chance to live a good life, they would literally put them in a hill or, or put them by the ocean. It's called expose them at birth. And then they would just die from the elements of predators. And it wasn't considered murder because the child hadn't lived long enough to be alive. So even right right now, we're hearkening back to what might have been the definition of life in biblical times, when what the definition of life in biblical time was might not have even been what we think it was. Mm-hmm. Even birth itself, when we're alive, is a matter of huge controversy. Yeah. What does it even mean to be alive? I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> and And if we have spirits... Do the spirits pre-exist or are they manufactured at birth? And then if our spirits are the housing of our true life, not our bodies, then is our literally our bodies just clothes that we and take off? we really ever die then yeah. at that point? And if so, like what dies? Yeah. Is the body even a critical component of one of one's existence? Using the clothes analogy. Um, you know, are we dying every time we take off our t-shirts? Are we dying every time we go skinny dipping? Wow. That's a loaded question. Once again, topic for another episode. (laughs) (laughs) No demonstration. (laughs) No, but it it is a really interesting question. And I think it goes back to 
if anything that I'm taking away from this conversation alone, it's that <laughs> this right now, what we demonstrated was the new normal for you and I. And it's having the ability to create the space, having the ability to think, to share our perspectives through this lens instead of, because that's kind of how I started to approach even some of these podcasts is instead of solely focusing on the topic at hand, try and demonstrate the topic, <laughs> you know? Like actually like live it. Like this right now is a new form of normal. Yeah. And has been for a while for the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. Normal. I think one of us said earlier mm -hmm. is at least in part defined by cultural norms, or at least what people perceive cultural norms to be, mm -hmm. whether better or worse. But what's interesting is another thing that has no clear boundary or definition, at least that I understand, is a culture. What is a culture? Particularly, what is the size of a community that creates a culture? When you and I are having conversations, and our conversations from the very first one we've met have been, very, you know, that we had have been very rich and engaging, mm -hmm. but they have also evolved. They've occurred across formats, telephone, text, video. Um, but our own culture that we've developed between the two of us, is it, are, are, can two people, is that a large enough group to have a culture? If so, then have we created our own cultural norms and what is normal or not, even between the two of us within the cultural norms we've created, if we are a big enough of a unit to have even created a culture. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, what is a culture, actually? <laughs> How do you understand that? Have you done any research into that? I've done casual research. And I <laughs> <laughs> but as I understand it, it is a, uh, it's, it's shared norm. Mm -hmm. Shared patterns of behavior, shared communication. The arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. But it doesn't say anything about the number. That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, I think that probably maybe goes back to the group component, right? But maybe not. Like Lachelle here brings up a really good point. I'm in the culture. Therefore, she must be a culture of her own. Yeah. Or right? is she in our culture? She's certainly in our, she's certainly in our culture now, I guess. Right. Cause she's in the conversation. Yeah. She's in our culture and she shares the same things that both you and I do. And that's, we walk away with pages yeah. and pages full of notes. <laughs> <laughs> that I fall behind on and apologize <laughs> people for having taken too many and not absorbing them. <laughs> But that is a really good point because I, I mean, that also raises the question is like, what is a group? How many is enough? Is it two people? Can you have a group of one? Yeah. That's something that I've actually been curious about. Like, why do you need two to make it a group? Because if it's all based on like, well, I don't know what it's all based on, but if, if the factors that are, considered into that like variety of perspectives, different levels of thoughts. Can't you experience that as well on your own? I was once in a fascinating 
book club. We only could read books that were nonfiction and they had to be sensationalistic. And so can you imagine better things to read about sensationalistic <laughs> nonfiction, especially the sensationalistic part I was there every month. Uh, but in any event, um, one of the books that we read that was sensationalistic, but it was actually really tragic and intense was a book called Genie. And it was about this poor girl. It, honestly, Oleg, it breaks my heart even thinking about it. If I recall the details right, she basically was put in a high chair or a chair as a child and left in a dark room without any light uh-huh. for you know, almost all of her first 10 years, maybe even up into 12. At a minimum, it was her first eight years of her life. And the um, point of the book, and her life was tragic. She was adopted by people who really didn't care about her. They viewed her as a scientific curio. And a lot of what she was studied for was her ability or lack thereof to develop language skills particularly those that involved grammar. She like could understand individual words, but she was really stunned when it came to the ability to um, put together sentences that were anything approaching complex. Mm-hmm. And so, and there were a lot of examination discussions in this book about like changes to the brain that happen when you're young that enable language. And the reason why I mentioned that is that if you are truly one, um, particularly if you are a child, but perhaps even if you're an adult, how does that change your brain? And then what impact on that brain, on, what impact does that have on your brain's ability to create a culture? Or is there a point within which culture ceases to exist? People always say from other countries, America, there's no such thing as American culture. It has no culture. Is that true? I, I think that's a bunch of baloney but people say it if it's just you and no mental stimulation at all would your brain process in a way that would enable you to even have a culture of one or would Mm -hmm. it just go into shutdown mode Mm -hmm. well i think the interesting part about america is one of the reasons why i could see someone saying and maybe believing that thought to begin with is because every city does have its own culture (laughs) And so with the increased variety of the concept of culture, there may become a point where it's difficult to articulate like one particular culture. Because even think about it. I mean, the difference in food between New York City and Austin, Texas and Ohio and Michigan and California, very different. The difference in entertainment, um, just the difference in activity, period. I mean, looking at New York City, you know, even looking at like components of New York, Manhattan compared to Brooklyn, mm-hmm. very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of those things where sometimes I even wonder, right? Like in a way, are Texas and and we'll just use our own examples, Texas and New York City, yeah. are so far apart. Are we even communicating within the same culture, or are we just in adjacent cultures? And then in your case, mm-hmm. Austin and the rest of Texas. Yeah. Literally, like, living in a different country sometimes. That's what it feels like. So, I, yeah, that's a good question. It's a really good question. Like, what makes a culture? (laughs) What's enough to create it? What's needed as far as the number of perspectives? Or can you create it of your own? Does your own personality? Can your own personality be a culture of its own and the uniqueness that you bring to the world? 
what if you live in a culture that is so conformist that any sense of individual identity is sublimated completely? Could such a thing happen? And would you be able to, would in that case, there be actually such thing as normal because everything is so uniform? Well, can't you argue that North Korea to a degree is an example of that? Yeah. You know, and that's where I, yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. And it would be interesting to have a conversation with someone who has either lived there or lives there currently and how they perceive life and what does this concept of normal and culture and all these other topics mean to them? (laughs) Because they're, I'm assuming that because there is not much change that's literally like allowed um, and much of it is operated on a routine that uh, that's a really good question. Then also I wonder to what extent there is the ability for culture to exist in beings that are either a significant level below us intellectually or not. Now, I don't think it is in real dispute to my knowledge that animals, for instance, especially social animals, but even non-social ones can develop cultures. Mm -hmm. And they've been observed and studied and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about, for instance, at what level in, as you go down further and further and further on the level of complexity or simplicity in the animal kingdom, or even to things like viruses that are not, sort of straddle life and not living and non-living are their cultures where does culture start but then also what might go beyond us what if we are able to develop ai or what if robotics gets to a certain level to which we're calling ai artificial intelligence which assumes that it has intelligence at what point will ai or robots that may have ai within them be able to form their own intelligence and their own independent intelligence, or maybe they, it wouldn't even be independent intelligence wouldn't even be required. To what extent could AI have a culture at all? So for instance, if we have um, significant, sufficiently advanced machines that are communicating with each other to have non-preordained outcomes, are those interactions themselves culture and the non-preordained outcomes simply the achievements of that culture? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, if you really think about it, I guess to a degree, <coughs> Google is a great example of it. Yeah. Or any search engine. Yeah. And then I guess at that point, I would have to question is it actually, does it actually have a form of intelligence? Is it actually able to think? And what does it mean to think? Because I'm assuming that in, in the case that those things work, it's all about pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. You know, like I type in the word why, and then it's going to give me top 10 results based on everyone else who has typed in a similar word. Um, but beyond that, that would it have a culture 
And does it actually have the capacity to think? That's a good question. And I mean, what, really what, know that, mean? Yeah. You say? what does it even mean to think? How well, do we, yeah. Do we build off of each other? Are we just literally recognizing patterns and building off of it? Like, is every thought an original thought? Or no thoughts, original thoughts. I mean, you know, there's this great TV show from the 70s called I, Claudius. And in that, you know, the emperor Tiberius gets into an argument with his mother. And his mother said, everything you've ever thought of, I've thought of first. That's my curse. <laughs> Even in saying something like that. Think about it. Even in saying something like that to you. And then you having to put that in the back of your mind every time you think something. And then you have some other voice in the back of you that says, oh, that's already been thought. <laughs> it's so hard having thought of everything first. <laughs> I'm so unfair. Well, yeah, alternatively, you know, how do we know, by the way, that everyone, and I, I know this is totally getting out there, but, you know, <laughs> right? Like pattern recognition in Google. How do you know? How do any of us know? That any of that the person we're talking to has any thought at all. For all you know, especially since we've never met in person, I could just be some avatar and some you know very complex AI myself, just spouting stuff back at you because I've had some you know significant enough understanding of human behavioral human behavior patterns, and then have a deepening understanding of you due to my ongoing interactions with you as the sophisticated AI that I am to yeah. completely copy an, an actual flesh and blood human being having a conversation. And I fooled you. Yeah. And Lachelle too. That, yeah. And, and in that point, the other thing that it makes me think of is even in the situation when you're typing something out when you're looking for something and this suggestion comes up, is that just an impulse thought? that actually replaces the original thought. Yeah. And then you convince yourself that this was the thing that you were looking for in, in reality, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> Lachelle you know, actually brings up a real good point. She was talking about um, innovation here, something that you and I talked about, this whole concept of ideas and beliefs. <laughs> she was saying that anything is fair gain based on someone else's beliefs because ideas are innovations and they are born daily in someone else's head. And they are. Yeah. And everyone has them. I think. I think everyone has ideas. I hope so. <laughs> you know, sadly, you don't know, like a vegetable yeah. or something that but yeah i mean they they clearly do it's amazing because it's easy also to underestimate the capacity of people to have ideas you know i when i worked for that nonprofit, one of the things that it did was it ran um group homes for developmentally disabled adults significantly developmentally disabled but there was a man in there who you would think you know this capacity for certain type of thought was clearly suboptimal. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been in the IQ group that would put him to be eligible to live in that house in the first place. But the man could paint. Stuff was beautiful. And they had it all over the house. Um, and it, 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 I mean, it was really, 
it was really, really special. So he clearly was seeing things and he had ideas about what the world looked like and he had feelings about it too that he was putting out there and expressing in this way that was artistic. Far better than, far better than I could. Far better than most people could. What do you think is the danger of having too many ideas? I mean, for me, one of the things that comes to mind is in having too many ideas, my experience has taught me is that there, there were difficulties in actually executing upon mm -hmm. those ideas and putting mm -hmm. them into action because there are so many. So that <laughs> in having too many ideas, that concept of overthinking, it, it actually becomes a thing. Is that really, though, then, is that truly, though, maybe tying back to the theme of self-discipline that we talked about earlier? Um, having the self-discipline to say to yourself, this idea is worth my time or not, or this yeah. idea is a priority or not, or maybe some people just, it's not a matter of self-discipline. Maybe they simply can't. Yeah. If that's the case, then there is, part of me reacts against that though, and, mm -hmm. and this is bias, a huge bias on my part, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, I, I grew up in an area of the country where certain out people, and look, this happens here in New York, so it's not just confined to a certain area of the country, where right. people are like, don't think so much. You think too much. Hmm. A show here said, too many ideas lead to ego, <laughs> if you are given to greed. I could see that. Me too. I could see how that could be a thing. Especially if you're around people who may not have as many ideas as you do, or who may not express their ideas externally. Mm -hmm. You don't aren't aware that they're actually having them. And, 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 and if you are developing that ego because of having too many ideas and combined with your own greed, I can almost certainly assure you that people are having ideas about you. <laughs> <laughs> They're probably true. not very nice ones. Very true. <laughs> Every single minute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every single interaction. <laughs> I used to be curious about that. I used to be um, curious about that. Like, what what do people think? What are the impressions that I leave? But after a while, I'm just like, why? Yeah. You know. I mean, but do you ever? But is there a point to which you like will say, I do care about it? Like, if I walk out of the house the way I looked two days ago before right. I got my hair cut and I didn't wear a baseball hat. I could say, I don't care what people will think, but I would <laughs> <laughs> desperate to get that mop cut. Yeah. I mean, probably, you know, to a degree, I think there is, there's truth there. There's a grain of truth there as far as <laughs> thinking about what others and the impression that you leave behind. But I don't know. I guess for me, the, the difference is like wanting to know the ultimate truth of it and then just letting it go. Mm -hmm. Just accepting mm -hmm. the fact that like people do, people will think mm -hmm. whatever they want to think. You know what I mean? Well, and then there's the other approach, which I've come to embrace actually to some mm -hmm. extent, which is that even if people are thinking negatively, mm -hmm. They're thinking about you. You're making an impact. You know, like, and you and I have talked about this in the public speaking context. We both have very distinctive speaking styles, mm -hmm. right? Yours is very, well, I, I just want anyone to go to your website and watch you. I think, <laughs> uh, I'll that one. My, mine right, is a very big style. 
one might say. And okay. some people don't like that. And part of me is like, at first I was like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that. Lately, I'm like, good. I'm making an impression. If they're sitting around saying, I didn't like him because of da 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 da, they're remembering yeah. me. And so sometimes embracing embracing that is something to be considered. Yeah. And it can be extremely overwhelming. Kim Schultz had mentioned the same exact thing. <laughs> it can be overwhelming. Um, Catherine had joined us here and she brought up a very good point here. <laughs> Essentially, talking about how looks at program search engines to fit our searches for a lot of information. We as humans will continue to program and create these patterns and com computer codes that are faster or relevant. These programs will continue to influence us when we think we're making the decisions when really they are not. <laughs> that is some scary sci-fi stuff. <laughs> not accept we probably in fact dismiss it as sci-fi because it's real and it's too yeah. scary to contemplate because it takes away it goes back to our earlier discussion about freedom itself yeah slavery what does it even mean to have it at that point yeah. mm -hmm. we think we're free but we're not yeah think we're thinking we're not even thinking mm-hmm mm -hmm. <laughs> and Lachelle this is something that she brought up here in regard to what you were saying, but literally just directly tied to what you just said about thinking and, and this whole perception of freedom and how you are viewed. Offering to prefer to set a set of standard for your appearance based on your own set of values. Yes, Lachelle, I think you might be right. And I, I feel a little bit better just hearing you say that. <laughs> <laughs> But really, so much of it is it does boil down to that, though, right? Yeah. To a degree? Yeah. Because if I didn't care what people, right, if I thought that the way people looked generally was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so I was concerned about it because um, I wasn't looking as ridiculous as other people were, then I probably wouldn't get the haircut. I mean, you know, yeah. in all seriousness, that is true. My, my standards have to be aligned with those of of those whose opinion I care, you know, I'm, I'm weighing. Yeah. But at what point within that, do you choose to accept someone else's opinion of you as your own opinion compared to having your own opinion of whatever you believe to be true? Is there a line or is there no line? between or, right, or sort of bleed from one end to the next. <laughs> exactly. You know, like in the case of your husband, because you trust and you value him, how do you understand the fact that his opinions are also just his opinions yeah. at the end of the day. And that's a tough one. You know, and I'll repeat a story that I think I've told you before. And it was, I think, during the haircut conversation. So, Lachelle, appreciate you listening to it again, which is that, you know, we were in another country traveling one time. My hair grew out long and I decided to do, you know, it tends to grow, grow a little long in the front. So I decided <laughs> to turn it around so that the top of it looked like a um, ice cream, a soft serve ice cream swirl from Dairy Queen. And my husband looked at me and said, that looks horrible. It looks ridiculous. Will you please not go out of the house like that? And I chose to disregard his opinion. And he was <laughs> very annoyed with me about it. And, um, you know, and then we went to this restaurant and the woman who owned the restaurant with the minute we walked in, she looked at me and she said, pointed at me and she said, oh my God, I love your hair. <laughs> 
right? Like I chose not to adopt my husband's opinion as my, my own. And I'm glad because a woman in the restaurant liked me, mm-hmm. but, but you know, right. Other times I'm, you know, other times in other situations, I might've been like, okay, let me go back to my non dairy queen hairstyle. <laughs> yeah. Cause even with that thing that you just mentioned, I mean, I believe that in a situation where you re- either received a no or someone else's perspective, <laughs> it's not the ultimate thing. Yeah. It just means that you haven't talked to enough people. Like when huh. you talk to someone else, you may receive that answer. Yeah. As the woman at the ice cream store. Yeah. Told you. So I think there, I don't know. That's a, it's an interesting line. I'm still learning that as much as I can. Like what is the line that I draw as far as, okay, looking and observing one person's perspective and opinion and then understanding that that at the end of the day is just one opinion that's it regardless of who it comes from so are there people whose opinions about a certain topic you view as the authoritative opinion like like when i was a little kid leonard malton mm-hmm. if he said a movie was bad well that meant it was bad mm-hmm. so i wasn't gonna go because he was the authority I outgrew that, by the way, just in case anyone listening. <laughs> I'm still caught in that trap. But but when I was a little boy, I hadn't outgrown that yet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question. Um, honestly, I would say no. I would say at this point, I really do try and view everyone's across the board with the same set set of standards i guess and it's understanding that like no matter what the relationship is at the end of the day it is just one perspective no matter how much trust i may have <coughs> um i think a lot of that goes back to the discipline and the practice that you and i spoke for the past hour and trying to understand that like at the end of the day you're the one that makes the choice like no one can change you mm-hmm. you have the choice in that why is it though that you think though that human dynamics go that way so right like there may be some issues where so and so says it and that's the last word all of the hens in the coop quiet down yeah um so catherine brings up a very good point to your question and that is there's an internal desire to be accepted by others even in the face of our differences. But I wonder, is that something that we, is that something that's conditioned? Or is it something that's actually necessary? You know, is that something that we've chose to believe for however many years, the desire to be accepted by someone else? Because also, and the reason why I bring that up is because as I think about my own journey, I mean, there are components of my own self that I've accepted and that's it just me like it doesn't really matter to me that much whether or not those same things are accepted by their people what if those things were not accepted though in a way that caused you to have your freedom limited to be punished like to go to jail like what if you felt that i don't care what everyone thinks i think that um you know selling heroin on the street is perfectly fine Mm mm-hmm Right. And so you, you know, next thing you know, you end up in jail and you right. Is that the sort of thing where you think that that sort of thinking that you just had, maybe, you know, that you would still engage in it. 
Knowing what I know now, probably not. But at the same time, the argument that I would make is that in anyone else's circumstances, I don't know what their circumstances may be. So to them, that might bring the same level of purpose, meaning, understanding that you and I are able to experience through a different set of experiences. I'll give you an example. Last year, prior to COVID-19 and all this other stuff, I remember I was playing basketball one day and I remember I got to this park probably like 20 or 30 minutes early. So my core group of friends, they still weren't there. I remember I got there and there was a group, there was actually two um, homeless guys that were sitting at one of the benches there. And them and I started to have a conversation and they, I mean, they hang out there, I would say like every time we, pl- we play a pickup game. And I started to have a conversation with them and I was learning more about who they are and what they value and different things. And one of the things that they mentioned, <coughs> at least for one of them, the reason why he chose not to change his own life and not be homeless anymore was because he had a sense of community. Mm. Like he had a sense of support. And I remember in that moment, just thinking about it, like, wow, he literally has everything that I'm able to have. And yet I'm the one that's judging his experience in thinking that he doesn't have what I have. Mm -hmm. When at the end of the day, he had the same exact thing that you and I are able to have just in a different form. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He still has conversations with people. He still has community. He's still able to, I think he, um, so the, the spark is in Austin and I think his mom lived in Round Rock, which is about 30 to 45 minutes. So he would literally get on the bus at night and go and see his mom. Wow. So, and because of it, because of the relationship he also had with the person who, uh, who was the bus driver, the guy would just let him on for free. So like, really think about it, you know, like, I don't know if you've experienced this, but there have been situations in my life where I looked at certain individuals or certain situations and I would judge them for what they were only to realize that they might be experiencing the same exact thing. And they, these, this whole notion of like, they need more or they don't have this. How do I know that? Yeah. I'm just assuming. Yeah. Nothing about that statement may be true. Yeah. So that's something for us to ponder on. And I know that out of respect for your time and anyone else's time, <coughs> we chose to join. Um, we'll have to have a version 2.0 and then a 3.0 and a 4.0 because we definitely hit on at least like seven different topics here. Exactly. And we really just did the first chapter of what could be a very long, fascinating, <laughs> epic, epic book. <laughs> it could be. Scott, what is the best way that people can support you right now if Thank- you are taking support? Yes, thank you. I always love <laughs> First of all, they could connect with me on LinkedIn, um, um, smason1 
and or you could just look me up at Scott Mason. You'll see my shining face. I'm connected with you. Um, they could go to my website, speakerscott.com, and connect with me there. There's a contact page. And they could also listen to my podcast, Purpose Highway. Um, it is at purposehighway.com, purposehighway.com. Uh, always love hearing folks' feedback on those episodes. And, of course, no one should ever miss our Thursday at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time, Facebook yeah. and LinkedIn live podcast, just a squirrel looking for a nut getting out of the rut, because you and I go at this on, uh, you know, over and over <laughs> and have been doing that for months now, and I think we'll be doing this for a very, very long time. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and yeah, you're definitely spot on. I think everything that we touched upon today will most likely be a topic in one of those episodes coming up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. This is always my favorite podcast to come on to. No, thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. Sure. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can hear these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next week.